gemasenet Biermon. Ninge kenda na king bakana, onsam gan in da na kubijigan anik masin biamawat, onsam wijuakwan ishuat dawat nungong, onsam gije e anjigo. Gish kanabika in a gidao, gaig chigami awian, gema washkian amazoyan, gawingi kenamisian. A message to you. I know there are different worlds because our ancestors sent them messages, because lost lovers now live in them because you just said that right now. Are you the carved shoreline and I the sweetwater sea, or am I the shifting wind you cannot perceive? Beautiful. I had a couple of questions that I, I'd love to ask. Having listened to you, I know, Margaret, that you're saying that um, language is, is very verb heavy. I was curious about in the conjugation of the verbs, are there any, are, are pronouns wrapped into the verb, like in Irish? Or are they, I, I was curious about where the presence of I and you might have been in there. Yes, absolutely. So the language focuses on action and relationships and the nouns and the beings are second to that in yeah. many ways. I often teach my students to think from the center of mm. any action and then Describe it by adding to that action word in, on either side. Put something in front or behind to say who is doing it or when it happened. All those things would be attached to the word so that the relationships, the connections, the time, often the place, many things are added to that action to make it more clear. So there's instances throughout the poem when you see the short Y-A-N, that's yeah. a yun, that's you. Ah. versus the Y-A-A-N, the yawn, that's me. So the difference in the last two lines between saying I, it comes at the end of the line, or you, it comes at the end of the line. The English translations are never exact. Yeah. I try to keep them as close as I can because I know my students and other learners read them. But you have to kind of keep to the spirit of the poem too so it will appear a little different in English. Yeah. I was curious too about, um, you know, the word Gichigami and also, and I know I'm not doing the pronunciation well, but um, Gido as well. These two places that seem to me to be referring, you know, to the to the coastline as well as to the sweet water. Are they referring to specific places or are they referring to the general? Uh, yeah. So those lines where it says Gishkanabeka, that is a word that means carved mineral, carved edges, carved stone. Ina is a question, and gedao is you being something. So in that one, the syntax is almost reversed. So gishkanabeka is a carved stone edge of something. And so in saying gishkanabeka ina gedao, it's the question, is this thing this, even that itself is often thought of as sort of an intransitive verb. Sometimes there are a lot of places that are described as yeah. kind of 
sentient places, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then Gichigami is definitely the term that we use for the Great Lakes, um, all of the Great Lakes. They have separate names now, and there were parts and places and bays that had individual names, but you can find a lot of evidence going back thousands of years. You know, if you look, there is a sense that people knew this as one place. This was one watershed, one very connected set of lakes together that were central to people's being, really. And so Gichigame, Game is like a, a, a big sea or a, a place, and Gichigame is the sort of largest central place for Anishinaabe King. It's interesting because that word Game is what we put on the end of a, when we say a building, we might say Mazana, Game Gong, Game, like the book building or place. So this sense of placeness is something you could use on a water place or a land place or a building place. And Gichigame is sort of this largest central place that we have. I read that you were giving an insight into the word for translation, meaning tying things together. And I brought that when I read this poem, thinking that the poem is tying the living and the dead together through voices heard and through place and through water. Yeah, definitely. That second line has anikobijigananik. Um, Ninda anikobijigananik is saying our relatives. Anikobijigan is our ancestor, which is literally one that we're connected to or tied to. So anikobidon is to tie something. Literally, you might take sweet grass and tie it to something, or you might take a rope and tie it anikobidon. And that word becomes a noun when we express who our ancestors, anikobidjigan, one that we're tied or connected to. And also you were saying that the word for peace and listening are related, which in involves the quieting of the listener. Yeah, I think that's something we don't teach enough in the modern world. It would have been a fundamental lesson long ago when you had oral cultures, you had a need to listen and really internalize and understand something and be able to repeat it as you heard it, but also as you understand it and to bring it forth in a different time in a way that is true to how it was given to you. So I think that there are connections between the way we still ourselves, be calm and quiet enough to listen. And the idea that in English we say peace, peaceful, but I think it also connects to the sense of harmony or peace between beings or places or times. Anything, you know, anytime you need to reverse a, a series of conflicts, the first best thing to do is calm down and be quiet. Um, I think humans have a tendency to fight back or resist things or feel that disturbance or bring it into themselves. And if they would sort of calm down and let it go, it would be easier to get through things. Hmm. I, um, I kept on recalling a story from my family when I've been reading your poem and preparing for reflecting on it. Um, about 25 years ago, um, my auntie went through a period of three serious bereavements in six months. Her husband, um, her father, my granddad, and then another relative too. And at the end of the third death, all within this space, she had six kids under the age of 21. And like it was, uh, it was a grief upon a grief in terms of a time for her. And she woke up in the middle of the night because her own mother, my grandmother, who had been dead a number of years, her own mother was in the room, dancing around the room in the middle of the night, holding a baby and singing to the baby. And my auntie said to her, 
her mother, my grandmother, she said, um, why are you dancing with a baby? And my grandmother said, why wouldn't I dance with a baby? <laughs> and I was thinking about the way that you, um, this poem highlights the connection and the connection that can happen in the space of dreams and the the um, the importance of paying serious attention to that rather than just thinking, oh, it's just a function of the unconscious rather than instead saying this is something to be taken as a serious message um, and that this is evidence of a connection that goes on beyond death. Absolutely. I would think that you know, to me, when you were telling that story, my first thought was, was she the baby? <laughs> was this a glimpse backward in her life to a moment that you might not remember as an adult that you were once carried as a baby and somebody sang to you? And there might be times where you need to rehear that, but you can't quite remember it as an adult. I think you're right. There are um, many ways that we understand the world and the layers in it and the parallel ways, I think, of being in the world. Um, Ironically, this particular poem that you picked has a sense of connection to ancestors because that's often where I think I try to reach and move that world forward so that for my daughters and all those who come after, we're, we're keeping these connections alive. But to tell you the truth, this particular poem came out of a very real world, modern moment of sitting in a office meeting at a workplace at a university where someone so profoundly misunderstood what I was trying to say that I just couldn't figure out how to express that they were completely not open to views other than their own. And so often in the workplace, for me, the retreat sort of mentally or spiritually when I encounter things that attempt to erase our culture or erase language, I just have to quietly think, no, there's been so much people have withstood before this. This is small. There are people we are connected to. So this, this actually was a poem that came out of needing to pivot out of a sort of a modern space where the world was not hearing us or understanding our language or the need for our Native students on our campus to have certain things. Um, they were expecting assimilation in a way that I just found so offensive, but I could not articulate to them. So the poem came as a question about whether people can understand one another and whether they can respect that we each have ancestors. And they're really all potentially different, but that connection is something that we all have. I, I had been curious about that last line or the last two lines, or am I the shifting wind you cannot per perceive? And I was so struck that it the poem ends, this short eight-line poem, it ends on a note of a question and also on a question about is perception possible? This makes so much sense because I, ha I had felt that the poem obviously has many cadences of consolation, but there's a deliberate change in the cadence of consolation toward the end. And that's so enlightening. Yeah, I think that it's interesting you picked to look at this one now because I live and work in Milwaukee, which is a city beset by many issues. And folks will often point to economic divide and racial divide and things happening in the United States right now. And these things have happened before. We've had groups of people that did not get along with one another, that had difficulty seeing and understanding one another's ways. And I think we really have to try 
on one hand, to be in a space and, and work through that difference, all of us, but we also have to protect ourselves and know there's a space where you have to just out, shift and back up and, and be neutral and, and find a way to survive forward without giving up who you are. And I, for me, that's something that I'm often trying to tell younger people who follow me that you can be yourself, you can continue to do what is important to you in a way that brings value to the world. Um, you do not have to entirely become what others expect. <laughs> I was curious about the title. Does the title translate directly to a message to you? Or it does. Okay, yeah. Well, it, it's the verb. Mazinabi is to write a message to someone. Mazinabi amo. So it's literally, I am writing a message to you. Hmm. I was thinking about how the, the message to you can work in so many ways. You know, a message to yourself, a message to the person who isn't getting it and seems to not want to get it, as well as a message to ancestors who can give you fortitude. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a balance. And I think that is something that as humans, we have to remember, you know, we have very short little lives and things can change so much. And we're often focused on what's in front of us or what will happen within our lifetime. And to really send a message either to someone who's right in front of you that just is not seeing or hearing you in the way you wish to be seen and heard, but to be also reaching back to the connections that you have as a person, you know, your own ancestors, your own relatives, we often forget to build those connections and, and keep them alive, I think. Um, when I had started reading the book, because I have a great love for tickities or cold tits, as we'd call them here, I had assumed that I'd um, probably land on a land on a poem that referred to a bird. But I couldn't get beyond this one. I mean, I read the whole thing and I kept on coming back to this one because I was so moved by the silence and by a sense of grief within it. Um, I was curious about then when I read how you speak about the chickadee, that the chickadee is one of the birds that stays all year round, that doesn't leave, that stays holding on to the white pine and continues to stay in the same place. Yeah, I think the chickadee, for us, it's gijigijiganeshi, which is a different way of hearing that bird. You might hear chickadee-dee-dee. We have bird watchers here who would teach young kids to identify the chickadee through that call. But in Nishnabemwen, we have gijigijiganeshi, just a slightly different way of hearing that bird. And in fact, in the book, gijigijiganeshi, the poem for the chickadee, also plays with that idea of connection. It starts out with Anakobijiganak, Anakobadowat, partly because if I write something, it's a way of teaching it as well. So that one was a little, very short kind of song poem that I wrote to help remind learners that sometimes the most practical verb you have to tie things is also a way that you might speak of relatives and connections that are meaningful in other ways. Beautiful. Whenever I hear you speaking about the connection to language and the not just political, it is political, but it is also something to do with the soul of 
uh, of a population who live in a place where there's a living language that and this, the language is calling people to pay attention to the ensoulment of place and the language that rose up from that. And I hear you say that over and over again when I listen to talks that you've given or read pieces that you've written as well, talking about the fact that when you come in contact with the language that's indigenous to the place for thousands of years, that that language itself will somehow help you to share in the soul of a place. Absolutely. I think it's the best medicine. It's the best method of getting to know a place. Um, I think that language, obviously, as a teacher of language and a, a lover of language and a poet, it's very important to me. But I think almost anyone, if you ask them, what would it mean if you were told not to use your language anymore? There's a visceral reaction to that. People understand that what you'd use, the sounds you use to express your thoughts and feelings is so central to who you are. Um, clearly, there are ways to use language. You can go a whole spectrum, good to bad, and you can say any number of things in every language. Um, people like to say some languages have no swear words, but <laughs> every language has something that you say when you're very angry. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that language really is something that can be a way to celebrate diversity. And we're in a, a time in the world where linguistic diversity is, it need, we need to think of that because we could easily simply erase languages and ways of thinking and connections to place and lose them before we realize it. And they're very, very hard to recover. You know, as you know, we often look to the Irish as, as a wonderful example of having gotten a bit ahead of us, really. We, we strive to have our language in public schools, um, to have the general community, the diaspora, sort of celebrate and use the language publicly. We're, we're getting closer to that point, but we're not quite there yet. Hmm. I, um, I saw that you wrote that the word for um, love is also the word for opening. Zage? Yeah, Zage. That's one of my, my favorite ones to talk about. Um, Zage, it's uh, you could consider it a morpheme just kind of on its own, but it's also the verb that we would use to add prefixes and suffixes and say things like gazaga in, I love you. That's how you typically translate that, but it's not quite the same as the English uh, metaphor. What it refers to is all of these ways of being open or to making outward gestures. Um, many of the other words that have that same sound refer to places where there's a water outlet on the earth, like the lake Sagaigan or Zagina, um, an area where there's a water outlet, like a bay or where there's a confluence. So there are ways that the idea of love and being connected are different from one language to another. Um, that's why I think it's it's fun for people to learn more than one. Um, it's my anniversary today, actually. So I've been thinking about words for love. And um, as I was, you know, texting Paul and writing him a card and stuff. Um, and uh, one of the ways in Irish that you can say love is uh, who you are my music. It's so interesting, the metaphors that languages reach for and how enlivening that is. Yes, yes. No, I knew that. Yes, I had. I taught the Irish lit class last semester, which I sometimes get to do. And my friend Barbara here, who runs our Celtic Studies Center, we had some comparisons in language. Mm -hmm. And 
We, of course, are very biased, but we felt that Ojibwe and Irish were perhaps the most musical and lovely languages that there are. I think, though, that's just plain, there are many that's just plain synergies. fact, Margaret. That's not bias I, at all. I would agree. Absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we wondered, too, sometimes we joke and this had been, you know, we've joked for many years within my family. Um, and it's not just us. Right. So you have a, a uh, sort of a confluence of history, right? You have people located in a similar space on the globe and really defined in ways by where the land meets the water. So whether you are a diaspora centered around this inland sea or whether you are an island within a sea, a lot of your metaphors are similar in the fact that you're in the sort of northern region, you have a seasonal similarity. But we have things like Painsuk, little, you know, little beings that have red hair that potentially cause disturbances or teach people lessons. And, you know, there are so many yeah. ways where when you get to know cultures and you can make comparison between stories, you can absolutely see that the option is either to believe that they really exist and they're, you know, all over in every culture in different ways, or to somehow think that, that people really, you know, connected sometime long ago, but that's probably the least likely. I think that People have a need to understand and describe the world through describing both the real and the imagined sometimes. Yeah, yeah. and that the, the imagined have a real function in the, in the process of the imagination. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just as we finish, there was one practical question that I wanted to make sure to ask because I, I, I've looked around and from what I could find, I wasn't confident that I would have found the right answer, which is um, in terms of ways of pronunciation of the language. So um, I've, I've heard you say Nishnabemwin. Right. Yeah. Well, so just for like clarity's sake. Mm. So... Anishinaabe is the term that you would use to describe what we also call the Three Fires Confederacy, yeah. a, a large diaspora of people in the Great Lakes. So Anishinaabe is one way of saying that. The Eastern dialect would take the A off and uh, say Nishnabem, you know. Yeah. And if we were saying it sort of in the slow, full, more Western version, like where I come from in Minnesota, Anishinaabemowin would be the language, Anishinaabemowin. Okay. But if you were on Manitoulin Island, more in the eastern sort of Ontario part of our larger diaspora, people would say Anishinaabemowin. Okay. They would sort of drop, um, we call them vowel droppers lovingly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to hear what so, they call you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, they call us slow or dramatic. <laughs> well, the dialect <laughs> of Irish that I speak is the yeah. Munster dialect, yeah. and we're often yeah. laughed at for how we elongate the vowel sounds. Yes. People are like, yep. my God, you're the not long singing. Double vowels there are so are. delightful. I know. Exactly, yeah. You see, yeah. another reason yeah. why not only are Irish and Ojibwe languages uh, superior, but also we particularly speak the um, the best dialects within those. What I, I mean. would agree. I would agree, but I can't be telling my my friends in the east that <laughs> and it's been interesting too you know when i first learned you know to write and use nishnabim one more i started out in minnesota and they said well when you go to michigan you won't even be able to understand people and it turned out in some ways true if i was only listening with just that western ear after a time though you absolutely can understand and okay. elders would meet one another from different places and 
completely understand, but what we find is that in teaching, it will really, really give students pause if you mix dialects yeah. and they like consistent spelling. So we try now in many ways to, to spell with the full Western dialect spelling and the Eastern folks sometimes just don't pronounce all of it. What a gift. Well, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yes. Well, good to spend some time with both of you. And I really, I will look forward to one day, you know, seeing you. <laughs> so will I. 